I uh, wore this kind of crazy shirt because my mom got it for me out of National Geographic magazine. So I always wore it when she was around. Figure she's maybe here, kind of around. I don't know how that whole thing works. After today, I think I'll probably hang it up and, and not wear it. And if she is here, that's okay, because Jesus will explain to her the fashion changes and time and all that stuff, and, and she's, she's, uh, she's good with it. We, um, Mom used to come, you know, uh, to worship here, and she'd go with us up on the mountain, largely because she didn't have to get up the stairs, and uh, we had to make a rule that she couldn't talk in church because she was hard of hearing, so I'd say something. She'd turn to Susan and say, What did he say? In the middle of my sermon. And she wouldn't understand the stories a lot of times. So I'd tell a story about some kid dying or something, and Mom would just start laughing in the middle of the service. Be, Mom, that's not the point to laugh. But she was um, a trip. For my uh, friend Dave's uh, bachelor party, because we were at Dave's bachelor party, right? Because <laughs> we were all the good Christian kids, you know, trying to be good. Um, and... Uh, we made a giant cake and we got my mom to get in the cake for Dave's bachelor party and we wheeled the cake in. She came out, danced all around, gave him a big kiss and then danced out of the room. But that was my mom and uh, I think she's dancing with Jesus right now. So I'm just, uh, I'm really grateful for her. Yesterday morning I found out that she passed and I thought, oh, okay. Well, then I all the more need to preach this sermon. Uh, it's appropriate for today. So, if you would, uh, pray with me. God, I thank you so much for mom. I thank you for your word that, that does not fail, that spoke her into existence and what, 91 years ago and spoke her into existence night before last. Thank you, Lord God, that what you purpose will happen. And you will make us in your image. God, maybe you could do that even this morning as I preach so that my words wouldn't simply be my words, but it would be your word. God, it just freaks me out how you do that, but I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This is uh, Psalm 69. To the choir master, according uh, to Lilies, that must have been kind of like the name of the tune they would they would sing this to, of David, of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck, nephesh in Hebrew, up to my soul or around my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am... Weary with my crying out, my throat is parched, my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. David sounds like he's been trapped in Hurricane Dorian. But to the Hebrew mind, he's describing a descent into the abyss, which was often in the depths of the sea, the abyss, or, or hell. His throat is parched from crying out, where the hell is God? Or in the words of last week's message. Where's that fuzzy monkey? Where's the fuzzy monkey? If you weren't here last week, last week Francis gave a brilliant message titled, First Run to the Fuzzy Monkey. And she showed this video. Harlow designs a set of ingenious experiments. He raises a baby monkey, allowing it to choose between two surrogate mothers. A wire mother that feeds it, and a cloth mother that doesn't. A cloth mother that Harlow thinks might provide something else. Comfort and love. Here's baby 106. Weaned on a wire mother. He's going to the wire mother. But this infant quickly runs to the cloth mother where he will stay for the next 18 hours cuddling. In Harlow's mind, choosing nurturing over sustenance. In another experiment, Harlow creates a fearful situation. Whom does the infant turn to now? 
Father R. when we fight him. He's scared, all right. And he does what any child will do in a similar situation. He was running to his mother to touch her, to drive away his fear. something about the experience of comfort and love, even more than food, that seems crucial to all these monkeys. But what happens when the infant is raised alone, without any mother at all, wire or cloth? In this situation, the orphan monkey stays alone. He won't even go to the cloth mother when frightened, but retreats into his own world. Harlow believes he has shown how want of love can damage an infant for life. And he worries the same is true for people. Well, that's a famous rhesus monkey experiment, you know, from the 1950s. Probably if you had Psych 101, you learned about that experience. Uh, experiment conducted by Harry Harlow at the University of Wisconsin. He, he demonstrated that the need for nurture, comfort, and love, uh, that, that perhaps that's even more fundamental to human beings than the need for food. And last week, Francis made this great point that your deepest need is a need for communion with your Creator the comforter. She also said that we can learn from our anxiety, that our anxiety can teach us to run to our Creator, to first run to Him before we run to, to other things, run to the One for whom we are made and in whom we are complete. She, she mentioned that an entire branch of therapy, Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy, AEDP, is based on undoing um, the problems of aloneness. So all therapy should be about undoing aloneness, and, and that makes a lot of sense. It's the one thing that God says is not good. In the garden, before the fall. Remember? He says it's not good that ha-adam, that is humanity, is alone. Humanity is alone in the presence of God who is love. A little like that monkey trapped in its own world. Well, David was called the man after God's own heart, and from an early age he took comfort in God. He wrote psalms to God. He played instruments before God. He communed with God. But in Psalm 69, he can't find God. Do you ever feel like that? God used to be your companion, but now you feel forsaken? Where the hell is the fuzzy monkey, Francis? Where is it? Verse 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? David is a victim. You ever been victimized? Where's God? Well, David is also a victimizer, right? You know his story. Verse 5, Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. David feels shame. Where's God when you, when you feel shame? And David feels this dreadful fear that comes with responsibility. I mean, think about it. He must be thinking, God, why did you make me king? Why'd you make me a dad? Why'd you make me a mom? Why'd you make me a son or, 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 or a daughter? Where are you? Because I'm drowning. For it is for your sake, verse 7, that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now, I don't know exactly what David is referring to here, but 
But maybe you felt that. You've done everything right, and the people you love treat you like a criminal. Or worse than a criminal, a stranger. David feels persecuted for righteousness' sake. Where's God's God now? Where's the fuzzy monkey now? Where is he? Where is he now? David feels righteous, and David feels like a humiliated sinner all at once. I mean, he seems kind of conflicted, right? Ever felt like that? Where's God now? When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. Where is God when you are reviled and rejected by men, when you feel weighed down with the sins of the world, and yet you also know, you also know that you're, you're righteous? Where is God when the entire world has turned against you? Verse 13, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close her mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I'm in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near, near to my soul. Redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach. You know my shame. You know my dishonor. My foes, they are all known to you. God knows David and his foes. But does David want to know God and his foes? Do you? Do you want to know God? Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. David feels alone. He thinks he's in hell. Jesus was once alone. Remember? He was alone. In Luke 22, 44, he was in agonia. So we get our word agony. Matthew 26, 37, he was lipestai. It means sorrowful. And he was ademonine. It means despairing, distressed, or depressed. Jesus was alone and despairing in a garden called Gethsemane. It means the olive press. He had just given his life to his friends, his body broken and bloodshed, and now he asked his three very best friends, Peter, James, and John, just to sit with him, because in the morning he would give his life on a tree in a garden for the sins and the sorrows of an entire creation. Just would you sit with me? Imagine if on the night of June 5th, 1944, the night before D-Day, Dwight Eisenhower, just he asked you just, just to sit with him. Would you just sit with me on this night? Imagine if Franklin D. Roosevelt could call just one person to sit with him on the eve of June 6, 1944. It, Imagine if he could choose just one, and he chose you. <laughs> Would that be an honor? Just to sit with him? Just to know him? Well, Jesus suffered alone. In the words of Isaiah chapter 63, verse 5, the Lord says, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. Jesus is the arm. Jesus is the strong arm of Yahweh, and he tramples the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God alone, the winepress that makes wine that is blood and blood that is wine. Well, David wonders, where the hell is God? Where is he? And then he sings. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink.
Now, that ought to sound vaguely familiar, right? In fact, a whole lot of what I've just read ought to sound vaguely uh, familiar because according to Scripture, it's not just David that's singing. Someone else is singing. Verse 9, we read, zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. According to Paul, Romans 15, verse 3, that last line is Jesus' line. David sings me, but the me is Jesus. And according to John, John 2, 17, the first line, zeal for your house, is Jesus. So David sings me, but the me is, is Jesus. And the house is more than a stone temple. It's his body, um, his, Christ's body. It's Christ's body, the body of Christ. Psalm 69, 4, we read, they hated me without a cause. John 15, 23, Jesus says, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. In other words, David said it, but I am it, says Jesus, in effect. Psalm 69, 21, David sings it, and maybe David experienced it in some form that we don't have a record of. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. All four Gospels record that. So David sings me, and Jesus is the me. The me is Jesus. In other words, the me in Psalm 69, 21 is I am. <laughs> Whew. That's a new me. This is John 19, 28. Listen. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, which is really meaningful in Israel, and they held it to his mouth. This happened as Jesus was being crucified. And John tells us that Jesus was crucified from the foundation of the world, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world on a tree in a garden. That means that Jesus spoke first at the edge of time and eternity. And then David spoke in Psalm 69, a thousand years before Jesus spoke it on the cross. They gave Jesus sour wine from the vineyard of Israel, and they had already given him gall. That's wine mixed with, with myrrh. It, it was a poison that they would sometimes give to criminals suffering. It was a poison, and, and it numbed the pain. That's why they would give it. But Jesus, if you remember, refused it. Maybe he didn't want to. Maybe he wanted to feel the pain. <laughs> That's why we'd, you would refuse the wine mixed with gold. Maybe he wanted to feel the pain with David. Or maybe he wanted David to feel it with him. So where the hell is God? Where's that fuzzy monkey? He's nailed to a tree in a garden. A week ago, last Wednesday at staff, Francis shared the theme of her message, and we all talked about uh, where we found God and found comfort. That is how we run to the fuzzy monkey. And I remember I listened to her, I thought, wow, that is so good. And, and I said something like this. I said, yeah, I think that's so right. Most mornings in my mind, without saying a thing, without intending a thing, full of anxieties and worries and stress, I just go sit with Jesus in my safe place on, on a beach. And I place my head on his chest, like I placed it on Andrew's chest years ago when I was being tried at the presbytery. I place my head on Jesus' chest, like John placed his head on Jesus' chest at, at the Last Supper. And, and then I said, I, I just sit there. And, and when I then live from that place, life is different. And then I said this, but sometimes... Sometimes when I just can't sit still, when it feels like I cannot find him, when I'm feeling thoroughly rejected, when I'm filled with shame and at the same time defending my righteousness, when I'm utterly confused and when I despair, I'll picture my hand strapped to a piece of, of wood and then another hand laid on top of my end and then a spike driven through each. And then I find peace or peace finds me. 
my fuzzy monkey is nailed to a tree in a garden. And I'm nailed to the same tree with him. And this is the crazy part. It really is my fuzzy monkey. It's the only place I find comfort or the comforter finds me. Now I know what some of you may be thinking. You may be thinking how morbid, how sadistic, how masochistic that you would find comfort in wounding yourself or wounding Jesus. But you see at that point, I'm not wounding myself or Jesus. I'm not wounding myself. I'm already wounded. I'm already suffering. And Jesus already suffered. Viktor Frankl wrote, despair is suffering without meaning. And John wrote, Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the meaning. At the cross, I surrender my wounds, and I see that they are Christ's wounds, and his wounds are transformed. They are transformed. They are metamorphosed, metamorphao. They are metamorphosed into glory. You might remember that it was the first thing that Jesus showed his disciples when he rose from the dead. He showed them his stigmata, his wounds. Now you may say, well, Peter, I... <laughs> You don't understand. I wasn't wounded for Jesus. I'm not suffering shame for Jesus. I'm not suffering guilt for Jesus. I'm not suffering rejection for Jesus. My soul, my nephesh, my soul wasn't wounded for Jesus. Is that right? If you give those wounds to Jesus, aren't they Jesus' wounds? And he was wounded 2,000 years ago, and, and even from the beginning of time. I mean, if you, if you really are his body, then those wounds are his wounds. Maybe they always were his wounds. You just, you just didn't know it. You say, I wasn't wounded for Jesus. Well, have you ever been wounded for the truth? Have you ever told a lie and then it just felt like a wound that you carried with you. Maybe that's because you love the truth. And Jesus is the truth. You say, I haven't suffered for God. Well, God is love. Have you ever suffered for love? Then you suffer for God. Have you ever suffered for beauty or for the good? When you're sick, I mean, aren't you suffering? Because your very flesh longs for the good longs for the life, and God alone is good, and Jesus is the life. You say, I haven't suffered for the good, Peter, because I've committed the evil. Well, are you suffering right now? Because you committed the evil? I mean, you wouldn't feel that wound of shame or guilt in, in your soul unless you also love the good, right? And Jesus is the good in flesh hanging on a tree in a garden. Think about it. If you suffer at all, how could you suffer for anything other than the good? And God alone is, is good, and the good in flesh is Jesus. So evil must be like a wound in his flesh, his body, which is you. So how could we not suffer at all? We could try to go numb. We could try not to care about truth. Not to love beauty. Uh, not to desire the life. We could try not to love love. We could try to be like that monkey alone in that cage, trapped in our own reality, our own world. We could try to create our own world. We could try to turn our hearts to stone and remain forever alone. We could try to not confess our sins and not surrender our wounds. We could try to save our own souls. We could hide like, like Adam hid. C.S. Lewis wrote, the only place safe from the danger of love is hell. So how could we not suffer? Guess we could go to hell. But even hell comes to an end in the fiery presence of God. We could go to hell or we could face our wounds and surrender our wounds at the tree and share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. God knows David. But does David want to know God? 
Jesus is called Son of David. And remember that Jesus is also called Son of, of Man. God knows man. God knows Adam. But does man, does Adam, does humanity want to know God? That's what the Apostle Paul wanted. Remember Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In Colossians, he wrote this, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. You know, Paul said that he was the chief of sinners. And he confessed to sometimes being anxious and to being just terribly depressed. But he rejoiced for all of his sufferings. You see, he rejoiced because they had new meaning in, in Jesus. His wounds were and are, even this morning, an open door of grace to all of us and to an entire world, an entire world of people that feel just incredibly alone. His wounds were Christ's wounds. And Christ, who was so very alone one dark night in a garden, is so very, 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 very not alone in eternity. Years ago, my wife Susan had a vision. I think it was during worship sometime. She, she would get these sometimes during worship. She, she turned to me and she grabbed me and said, Peter, I just saw the Trinity. I thought, well, that's, that's pretty cool, right? said it was like from above they were sitting the three of them like in a triangle they were sitting facing each other and they each had their hands outstretched like this and she said one hand was laid on top of the other hand and then a spike was driven through each Peter they were joined at the wound you know every member of your body is joined at, at a wound but it doesn't feel like a wound because it's joined. What I mean is every member of your body bleeds into every other member of your body, and that's called life. That's the perichoresis, the mutual indwelling that we preached on two weeks ago. God is a dance, and he has invited us to join him, and God is joined at the wound. Think about it. We are least alone when we are the, with those with whom we have suffered. In other words, nothing binds two hearts together like shared suffering. We often call it marriage, and, and we make a covenant just to ensure that it works, that one member doesn't bail out as soon as it starts to work, as soon as it starts to hurt. We are least alone when we are with those with whom we have suffered. A few years ago in a counseling session, feeling terribly rejected by my brothers in the church, and I mean the big church rejected, even forsaken by God, filled with shame, and yet indignant about my wounded righteousness, despairing and feeling alone. David Henson, my counselor, had me picture my safe place, the beach. And then he invited me to look for Jesus. Right away I saw him. He came walking down the beach, smiling ear to ear, and I looked and I could see those crimson wounds in his hands. And then with those hands, he pointed at my hands and I saw the very same wounds on my hands. And I just wanted to sing hallelujah <laughs> because of my wounds. On numerous occasions, praying with women who have been horribly abused, Jesus has appeared in visions and shown them his wounds on their bodies and his wounds on their, uh, well, their wounds on, on his body, his on theirs and theirs on his same. He doesn't explain the wounds. He just reveals that our wounds are his wounds and his wounds are our wounds. And that's what terrifies the evil one who seeks to trap each of us alone in a hell of our own construction. I can't explain how this happened, but recently the evil one manifested to me and wouldn't stop looking at my hands. Praying with a friend, she also looked at my hands and 
then looked at her own hands. Then she grabbed my hand and placed it on top of her hand, realizing that they both had the same wound as if a nail had been driven through each. One nail. See, the body of Christ is joined at the wound. Joined at the wound. And when it's joined, when it's finally joined, each member is outrageously happy and, and none is alone. To surrender your wounds is to be vulnerable in the presence of love. So first, run to the fuzzy monkey. And where the hell is the fuzzy monkey? Hanging on a tree in a garden. And where is that garden? Well, that garden is in your soul. Psalm 69, the Word of God is literally coming out of David's mouth. It, it must be coming from the garden that lies in the depths of the temple of his soul. The Word of God is helping David surrender his wounds. He already has the wounds. He's not wounding David. He's helping David surrender uh, the, the wounds, wounds that are truly their wounds. They are Christ's wounds felt by, by David. And Psalm 22 even helps David cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's two me's. And yet one me. They are alone together. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was alone. And in the garden where he was crucified, Jesus descended into hell that no one would ever remain alone. Seeing Jesus in hell transforms hell into heaven. Because wounds that are shared are the substance of heaven. It's just what we saw in the Revelation. The garden is in the temple of your soul, and the garden is at the beginning of time and at the end of time. It is the place where eternity touches time. Eternity touches your time and makes all things new. In the beginning, because we didn't know the good, we took the life of the good and imprisoned ourselves in a body of death. That's called sin. In the end, we see that although we took the life of the good, God gives the life of the good, and we wake to eternal life. That's called grace. And in the process, we die and we rise even with Him. We receive the life and know the good. We become the image and likeness of God. The place we hide is our own ego, our pride. Scripture calls it the old Adam, the old man, the old self, the old psyche. It's the self that believes it has created itself. The new self is Christ's self. It's how God creates us. The new self is God rising from the dead in the garden of your soul. Jesus is the son of David, right? He's literally born of David, the old David. And Jesus is the son of man. He's literally born of Humanity. Our old man is like the caterpillar and our new man is the butterfly and this body of death is like a cocoon. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Our sin is like a womb that gives birth to grace and God is grace. Psalm 82. You are God's. Sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, as Adam, you shall die and fall as one man. There are mysteries here that I am afraid to touch. But I know that when I surrender my wounds at the tree, when I picture the nail going through my flesh and into Jesus' flesh, it feels like my old self dies or I realize that it's already dead. I stop trying to justify myself for that self cannot be justified. It's already dead. feels like the old self dies and it feels like a new self begins to rise, a self I cannot create, a self I cannot justify because it is my justification. It's Christ in me. It's eternal life in me. It's grace. Listen to what Paul writes. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely, certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, our old man, our old Anthropos was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, so that we would no longer be alone because that's not good. You know, David began this psalm by singing, Save me, O God, for the waters have come to my nephesh. And it gets translated out because the translator just can't understand it. The water has come to my nephesh, myself, my soul. I mean, it sounds to me like David is being baptized. The old David is dying and Christ is being born. He's rising from the dead in David. Ah, so of course David sounds conflicted. But as he sings, David's body of sin is being transformed, metamorphosed into grace, for it's not just David that's singing. Verse 21, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and let their sacrificial feast become a trap. You know, the communion table is a trap. Even preached a, a sermon titled that, The Monster Trap, Remember? We take the life of God on a tree as body broken and blood shed, but that body and blood rises within us and makes us all things new, even, even monsters like us. Romans 11, Paul quotes these verses and teaches that they're all about the destruction of old Israel. These verses we just read. He quotes it in Romans 11. You can go read it. It's about the destruction of old Israel and that in this way, all Israel will be saved. Verse 23. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. Now David is singing, but someone else is also singing with David. So David may mean one thing, but we know that there's more meaning than David knows. May their camp be a desolation. Desolation, let no one dwell in their tents. In Acts 1.19, we learn that the camp is Judas and Judah and Jerusalem, the city of David. That's the city that David built. It will be utterly destroyed. Verse 26, for they persecute him whom you have struck down. Our God, Father, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit offered himself on a tree in a garden on Calvary. But what he gave, we persecuted. And we we took. They persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. To Moses, the Lord said this, whoever sins, I will blot out of my book. Did David sin? <laughs> oh, dang, you've read his story. This includes David, who's singing this song. We've all sinned and been blotted out of the Lord's book, but Jesus died and rose, even in the garden of your soul, to write you back in. Verse 28, blot them out. That includes David, verse 29. But I'm afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. With his song, David is presenting himself a living sacrifice. He's offering his nephesh his ego, his pride, and something else is rising in its place. As we said last time, his superpower that he gives to us is humility. Verse 32, when the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners, prisoners even of themselves. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them, everything in heaven and earth and the sea. That includes the depths of the sea to home. Uh, that would include everyone that David just cursed and asked God to write out of that book. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. And what is it? Well, it is the camp that David just asked God to make a desolation. The city he built is replaced by the city that God built, the new city of David. 
the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, you, us. So David began this song in despair, confusion, and resentment, but he keeps singing to God, with God. David began the song in despair, confusion, and resentment, but he ends with the hallelujah chorus. He ends at Revelation chapter 5 where he joins every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them, praising the Lamb on the throne who makes all things new, and in particular, you. Well, this is a really difficult, hard, philosophical question, but do you think it hurts God to make you? You're made with His Spirit, breathed into dust, and you're finished with body broken and blood shed. God knows you. Do you want to know God? Last year, my daughters Elizabeth and Rebecca, they texted me from Argentina saying that they saw Jesus rise from the dead and that they had captured it on video. That's the 40-foot Jesus that rises above the tourists at Tierra Santa Park in Buenos Aires, uh, Argentina. It's an amusement park, kind of like the Holy Land experience here in the United States. It's a place that sells the Jesus experience. You know, when we went to Disney World with the kids, the kids just couldn't wait to go on the Indiana Jones uh, ride because they wanted the Indiana Jones experience. It's why you go to the movies. You want to be there when Luke Skywalker saves the galaxy. You want to be there when E.T. finally goes home. You want to be there when Voldemort is defeated and the world is set free from the evil one. You see, I'm just pointing out that you don't need to go to the movies. You don't need to pay $20 and wait in line for the Jesus experience. You just need to surrender your wounds and discover that your wounds are Jesus' wounds and then watch as he makes all things new, even through you. Several decades ago, uh, Bill Mann, who was a famous gospel singer, returned to his dressing room to find a woman deaf, blind, and mute, waiting for him there in his dressing room. Through the woman that was with her, she asked if he would sing for her the last song that he had sung in his concert. And so as, he, as she placed her fingers on his lips and her fingers on his vocal cords, he sang, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? tear ran down the cheek of Helen Keller and then indistinctly through the woman that was with her she said I was there of course she was there she's his body do you feel sorry for Helen Keller don't I imagine that she feels sorry for you. But one day you will join hands and you will sing the hallelujah because she was there. And you were there. And Jesus was there. So mom died 36 hours ago. Found out about it yesterday morning. I'm so grateful that I got to spend time with her uh, last Sunday and 
and Monday down in New Mexico. My sister Rachel was with her just before she died, and she, w- she was happy. A couple of hours after Rachel uh, left her hotel room around 10.30, the staff came in to turn Mom in her bed. And uh, as they did, she looked up at them and she said this, I'm a butterfly and I'm going to fly away. And then she died. I think my mom had a lot of wounds. By 91, you Kelly have a lot of wounds. She had physical wounds, she had emotional wounds, but she shared them with Jesus. Or Jesus shared them with her. She was there when they crucified my Lord. And she was there when he rose up from the grave. And now she is so very, very, very not alone. For on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take, eat. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. That's a wound. Maybe while I was preaching, you became aware of a wound. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's some form of disappointment. Maybe it's a besetting sin. It doesn't matter whether you were the agent that caused the wound or somebody else. If you're the body of Christ, well, then this wound belongs to him, doesn't it? So would you come to the table and surrender your wound? You see, it really doesn't belong to you, but you belong to him. Amen. So were you thinking of a wound while I was preaching? And when you came to the table, were you thinking of a wound? Close your eyes and picture the wound. The evil woman would like to tell you that this wound means you are forsaken. But now I want you to look at Jesus. You came to the table. You can imagine this with your mind. I think when we imagine what's true, it's called faith. You just came to this table, if you've ever come to this table, I think even if you haven't, um, that wound is on his body. And you see, he does amazing things with wounds. Turns them into wings. (laughs) So right now, Would you just thank God for that wound? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bless the wounds of Jesus. And now you are free to fly away. Origen was one of the great church fathers. Uh, And we've lost a lot of his writings, but he was considered the greatest church father for the first 500 years of the church. And he once said, Christ remains on the cross as long as one sinner remains in hell. See, I think in time... Christ remains on the cross in the sanctuary of your soul waiting for you to surrender your wounds. And in eternity, you are already dancing with him. 
Roman Catholics and Protestants have argued over whether we should picture Jesus on the cross or not picture Jesus on the cross. I think that's because we have all, in modern times, not understand the truth that this cross stands at the edge of time and eternity. It's the door to eternity. And so you see, I think the fuzzy monkey, yeah, sometimes he's nailed to the cross, but he's not always nailed to the cross. But when you're hurting, when you're struggling, when you're divide, divided and caught in shame, I think he wants to meet you there. And he wants you to hand your wounds over to him. And then he wants to rise from the dead in you. When I die, hallelujah, by and by. Do you understand that if you came to this table, if you were baptized, you've already died with him? Yeah, you're hanging on to this old sack of meat that you're going to get rid of one day, but you can begin to fly right now. I think that's what John meant when he said the eternal life is in you. And so run to the fuzzy monkey, exactly like Francis said. And when you can't find him, look in that place you're most scared to look. <laughs> Your wounds. I bet he's waiting for you there to die with you and rise with you because he would like to fly away. <laughs> In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. And if you would like prayer, uh, this morning uh, members of the prophetic prayer team will be down front. In my experience, that's been really helpful because sometimes they can help you picture these things or God will give pictures uh, so the theology takes on flesh and a vision or something. But they're here to pray with you. The reason we have life groups is so that people, I mean, I, I get so... I get frustrated with church programs because I don't know how to make them work, but pretty much the bottom line of any church program is just trying to get you to share your wounds one with the other so that we would really be a body. That's why we have life groups. Um, that's why we meet together to help us surrender our wounds because they belong uh, to Jesus and we belong to Jesus. So in his name, believe the gospel and fly away. Amen.